The winter of 1692 was especially cold in Salem Village, a scattering of farms cut off from the urban center of Salem Town by a two or three hour walk on roads of frozen mud. The town was a prosperous port city with international visitors arriving on each ship, while the village had a reputation as a backwater community full of bickering and spiteful residents. There was hardly even a village center there, just a meeting house for church services in the council, a watchtower, an inn, a field for the militia to muster, and a small central cluster of homes that included the minister's parsonage house. Adults spent lives tirelessly working on their farms and getting to know their neighbors intimately, whether through family ties, gossip, or both. For children, there was much work and chores with only the weekly interruptions of Sabbath days and its hours of church services providing contrast. Young girls especially did not have much to feed their curiosity or imagination, while boys at least had access to hunting, fishing, training in their father's trades, and learning how to write. Girls were constantly reminded that they were destined to take the place of their mothers and become the caretaker in some future home with some future husband. They would watch as their mothers produced new siblings year after year and they would grieve along with the rest of the family as one in five of those children would die before they reached 20 years. It was not uncommon for these many births to also produce a death, taking away the mother and leaving the newborn infant and siblings as orphans, simmering with guilt. The New England Way was based around the principle that the family was the basic organizing unit of society, followed by the local churches, and then the Commonwealth. Continuity of the family structure was a fundamental priority to society. Girls were subordinate to their fathers and women to their husbands. Puritan parents believed that they would spoil their children with too much affection and had a practice of placing their adolescent children in other homes as servants where they believed they would learn better manners. The rebellious nature of children needed to be broken before they turned toward a path of sin. Young people who turned on their parents, either verbally or physically, could expect harsh punishment from the courts, including the possibility of hanging. There were exceptions, of course, as there always are. In this colony, founded by rebels, there were inevitable voices of defiance. Anne Hutchinson was a charismatic interpreter of scripture and doctrine who went so far as to host large meetings in her home where she held court and preached the gospel with authority. She and her family were aggressively driven out of the colony. The Quaker faith was heavily persecuted by the Puritans. One Quaker named Lydia Perkins protested their mistreatment by appearing in public naked. And another, Mary Dyer, was so outspoken that she was eventually hung on Boston Common. There was intense pressure to marry put upon all young people, but especially for young women as they on their own would be unable to earn the wages needed to live independent lives. The success of their future husband determined everything she had no prospects of her own. 
boys at least had some say over what trade they would enter into and had more outlets for expression. An unmarried woman at the age of 25 was considered an ancient maid. Perhaps this is what inspired some to seek information on their futures and turn toward the cunning arts, the pagan ways that predated Christianity. These ancient arts continued in an uneasy understanding with 1690s modernity, with fortune-telling and divination existing alongside the teachings of the church. Young women cracked egg whites into glasses of water, seeking a sign hinting at who their future husbands would be, or they would balance a sieve on scissors and watch which way it would turn in response to a question as children do today with pencils balanced on each other in schools calling for Charlie, Charlie. Perhaps this was a way for them to take control over some aspect of their lives, to dabble in that which was forbidden by the church, but accepted by the people. The stress and struggle of daily life and the overwhelming pressure to marry was compounded by the church teachings. Many young adults in the colony, male and female, harbored an extreme existential dread driven by the Calvinistic doctrine of the Puritan faith which taught that God had predestined only a few chosen people to be saved, the rest destined for an eternity in hell. From the Diary of Witch Trial Judge Samuel Sewell When I came in past seven at night, my wife met me in the entry and told me Betty had surprised them. It seemed she had given some sign of dejection and sorrow, but a little after dinner she burst out into an amazing cry, which caused all in the family to cry too. Her mother asked the reason, and she gave none. She was afraid she would go to hell. Her sins were not pardoned. She was first wounded by my reading a sermon. Ye shall seek me and shall not find me. Ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. It ran in her mind and terrified her greatly. Her mother asked her whether she prayed. She answered yes, but feared her prayers were not heard because her sins not pardoned. Lord, bring light and comfort out of this dark and dreadful cloud, and grant that Christ's being formed in my dear child may be the issue of these painful pangs.
In the past few years, towns in the north had been attacked by native warriors and French. Dover, New Hampshire was attacked in 1688 by Wabanaki warriors seeking revenge from the betrayal and capture of their kin after King Philip's War 12 years before. The hated French Catholics and their Iroquois allies attacked Schenectady, New York in 1690. Salmon Falls, New Hampshire also fell in 1690 by French and Micmac. French and Abenakis destroyed Falmouth, Maine, today called Portland. Local men from Salem and the rest of Essex County had been enlisted in the war effort and had sailed north on futile and ineffective attacks on French Canada. Many did not return, mostly due to smallpox. Refugees were streaming down into Massachusetts, telling stories of terror, scalpings, torture, and captured Puritans being force-marched to Catholic Canada and forced to convert. By late January 1692, nearby York, Maine had been the most recently destroyed town. Durham, New Hampshire, and Haverhill, Massachusetts, and many other towns were eventually destroyed in what became known as King William's War, the latest in a century and a half of on-again, off-again war between the British, the French, and Native allies.
parsonage home of Minister Samuel Paris, tensions ran high in that frigid month of January 1692. Paris raged about the home, pouring out his frustration in vitriolic sermons that he would compose and rehearse in the parsonage, with his entire family experiencing every word. Half of the village was in open rebellion against the controversial minister, breaking a contract saying the villagers would provide firewood for the parsonage home. Many villagers, in their open contempt for his extreme authoritarianism, withheld their firewood tax and protest, leaving the home so cold that the ink would sometimes freeze in his inkwell, preventing Paris from composing his weekly sermons. It was at this time that the two oldest girls of the household Daughter Betty, age nine, and Abigail Williams, Paris's niece, age 12, began to have what they call fits, acting strangely, even violently, screaming and making animal noises, going mute, hiding under the tables, going into catatonic states and flailing about wildly, hallucinating and screaming. The same thing began to happen with two young girls not far away in the village, in the home of Thomas Putnam who was a key defender of Paris and the patriarch of one of the village's most prominent families. His daughter, Anne, and the family servant, Mercy Lewis, a refugee of the war, began to have similar fits of their own. From Robert Califf's contemporary book on the Salem Witch Trials, More Wonders of the Invisible World. It was the latter end of February 1692 when diverse young persons belonging to Mr. Paris's family and one or two more in the neighborhood began to act after a strange and unusual manner, such as getting into holes and creeping under chairs and stools, and to use sundry odd postures and antic gestures uttering foolish ridiculous speeches, which neither they themselves nor any others could make any sense of. The physicians that were called could assess no reason for this, but it seemed one of them told them he was afraid they were bewitched. Upon such suggestions, they that were concerned applied themselves to fasting and prayer, which was attended not only in their own private families, but with calling in the help of others. Mr. Paris invited several neighboring ministers to join with him in keeping a solemn day of prayer at his own house. The times of the exercise, those persons were for the most part silent, but after any one prayer was ended, they would act and speak strangely and ridiculously, yet were such as had been well-educated and of good behaviors. The one, a girl of 11 or 12 years old, was sometimes seen to be in a convulsion fit her limbs being twisted several ways and very stiff, but presently her fit would be over. A former minister of Salem Village, an ally of Paris, named Diodot Lawson, wrote in his diary, I went at five o'clock to Mr. Paris to pay a visit. When I was there, his kinswoman, Abigail Williams, hurried with violence to and fro in the room sometimes making as if she would fly, stretching up her arms as high as she could and crying, wish, wish, wish several times. After that, she ran to the fire 
and began to throw firebrands about the home and run against the back as if she would run up the chimney and as they said she had attempted to go into the fire at other times and other things. children were sadly afflicted of they knew not what distempers, and he made his application to the physicians, yet still they grew worse, and at length one physician said that they were under an evil hand. This the neighbors quickly took up and concluded they were bewitched. These children were bitten and pinched by invisible agents. Their arms, necks, and backs turned this way and that way, and returned back again so as it was impossible for them to turn by themselves, and beyond the power of any epileptic fit or natural disease to affect. Sometimes they were taken dumb, their mouths stopped, their throats choked, their limbs racked and tormented so as might move a heart of stone to sympathize with them, with bowls of compassion for them. The children and their parents had, of course, heard the well-known story about the Goodwin children a few years before, who had been afflicted by a witch in Boston. The accused witch, Anne Glover, was an elderly Irish servant who was hanged on the Boston Common. Judge Cotton Mather had written a popular and well-known book on the Goodwin children in 1688. His description of the Goodwin children's fits must certainly have inspired the children and their parents. Sometimes they would be deaf, sometimes dumb, and sometimes blind, and often all this at once, one while their tongues would be drawn down their throats, another while they would be pulled out of their chins to a prodigious length. They would have their mouths opened unto such a wideness that their jaws went out of joint, and they would clap together again with the force like that of a strong spring lock. The same would happen to their shoulder blades and their elbows and hand wrists and several of their joints. They would at times lie in a numbed condition and be drawn together as those that are tied neck and heels and presently be stretched out, yea, drawn backwards to such a degree that it was feared that the very skin of their bellies would have cracked. 
they would make the most piteous outcries, that they were cut with knives and struck with blows that they could not bear. Their necks would be broken, so that their neck bone would seem dissolved unto them that felt after it, and yet on a sudden it would become again so stiff that there was no stirring of their heads, yea, their heads would be twisted almost round, and if force at any time obstructed a dangerous motion which they seemed to be upon, they would roar exceedingly. Thus they laid some weeks most pitiful spectacles. A group of men headed by Thomas Putnam went into the town to get a warrant for the arrest of three suspected witches. Sarah Good, a local beggar woman who went from house to house asking for donations, most often seen smoking her pipe with her pitiful four-year-old daughter and infant in tow. Sarah Osborne, a controversial woman who had outrageously married her much younger servant. The third woman called out was Tituba, 